Uh, do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of First Kings. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 4, or chapter 4, I'm sorry, verses 29 through to 32. Uh, and if you have one of these handy-dandy fancy Bibles with a built-in bookmark, um, go ahead and drop that bookmark in chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs, because we're going to be hopping back and forth between these two portions of Scripture this evening. Uh, let me read sort of our primary text in First Kings uh, chapter 4, verses 29 through to 32. It says this, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people of the east, all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Haman, the Chalcol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahal. His fame was in all surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. The people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. You know, last week we began to talk about the wisdom of Solomon as being sort of one of his defining features. And I realize in this room, all of us are coming from different backgrounds, Maybe many of us would say that we're Christians. Some of us might say, I don't know what I am. I'm, I'm interested. I'm seeking. Uh, but all of us, if we grew up in the West, have grown up in a Christian society, which means that you have this sort of baseline familiarity with the morals and ethics and narrative of the Bible uh, that other people in other cultures might not have. And so I would venture to say that if you grew up in the West in general, may have never read the Bible before, but you've probably heard something about Solomon. And, and one of the things you might know of Solomon is that he was known for being wise. And it's important, it's a distinction we made last week, but it's an important distinction to make again this week, that wisdom in different times has been conceived of differently. So in our modern age, if I were to tell you that somebody is wise or knowledgeable or intelligent, your mind would probably go towards some sort of a mathematical, scientific, mechanical knowledge. And that has some overlap throughout history. Understanding the way that the world works in a, in a mechanical sense has always been sort of associated with wisdom, but that's the emphasis of wisdom in our day and age. In the Middle Ages, if somebody had been said to be wise, uh, their mind would have gone to a more mystical sort of knowledge. Uh, that this would have been the sort of person who communes with God or with the divine or with the supernatural. That also has always been sort of an aspect of wisdom, but during that period, that was one of the defining things that people thought of when they thought of wisdom. Uh, but in the days of Solomon, when this text is written, all of those things have to do with wisdom. They're parts of wisdom, but one of the main features that people thought of when they thought of someone who was wise is they thought of somebody who was skilled in the art of living. Somebody who understood how to operate in the world in a way that was just and right. Somebody who did the right thing and knew what the right thing was. And it's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, the word that's used for wisdom is the word that's used to describe artists. It's the word that's used to describe artistic skill. And so there are, there are men in the book of Exodus who are goldsmiths. Uh, and they sort of hammer out this gold that they used to ordain or yeah, ordain the tabernacle. And it's said that they are wise in goldsmithing. 
Uh, later on in the book of Jeremiah, there are men who are referred to as being wise, and they're potters, and they're people who have some sort of artistic skill. It's, it's almost as if the Bible wants us to kind of wrap our minds around the fact that wisdom is bound up in living a life that is beautiful and is true. And that sort of kind of bears itself out in experience. When, when you think about somebody who lives a wise life by this definition, it becomes something that is beautiful and compelling to us. So maybe if you actually did what you were supposed to in freshman literature in high school, you read The Crucible. Uh, if you didn't read The Crucible, I implore you to read The Crucible. Uh, it's this play that's set during the Salem Witch Trials, so it's super interesting and dark and morbid and twisted and all the things that I like in a good story. Um, and it follows this small little New England town as they get increasingly hysterical and just accuse more and more people of being witches. It's, it's like Monty Python, but as a play. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that sort of the standard for witchcraft is if you say you're a witch, then, then you are a witch. But if you say you're not a witch, then you're also a witch because you're lying about being a witch. And so as you kind of read The Crucible, it follows the life of this man named John Proctor. And John Proctor was a real person. They just sort of fictionalized his life. Uh, but you can go to Salem and you can see John Proctor's grave and maybe get misty-eyed like I did at the grave of John Proctor because I'm a huge nerd. And John Proctor's wife is accused of witchcraft. It's obvious that she didn't do it. It's sort of the hysteria of the town spiraling out of control. And so he's trying to defend his wife over the course of the story. And ultimately, he gets accused of witchcraft. And again, it's obvious that he's not a witch. Um, he's not even... The son of a witch, he's just John Proctor, a God-fearing Christian farmer man. But it comes down to this sort of climactic scene that I'm going to ruin for you if you haven't read the book like you were supposed to, where John Proctor is accused of witchcraft, and he has, he has two options. He can lie and say, I am a witch, and he'll be spared. He'll live. Or he can tell the truth and say, I'm not a witch, and they'll kill him for being a witch. And so there's this sort of climactic scene where he, he has two options. He can, he can live in accordance with the truth. He can do what is ultimately right, but it will be costly. Or he can speak and act in accordance with a lie and bend the knee to the powers that be, and he'll survive. Ultimately, John Proctor makes the right choice. John Proctor says, I'm not a witch. And they hang him from the gallows. And, and there's this strange thing that, that happens as you watch the story because there's sort of this anger that wells up because you're like, come on, Puritans. You're so good at so many things, but you're so bad at hunting witches. <laughs> and, and, and then there's, there's this other sense of like sadness at, at the cost of sort of this miscarriage of justice. But there's also this sense of beauty that... that even though it's cost him his life, even though there is sort of this sorrow and this, this injustice that's carried out, John Proctor has lived wisely. He has, he has lived in accordance with the truth, even though it was costly. And there is something about that embodied wisdom that we find as people to be really attractive and compelling. You know, our text that, that we read for the evening tells us that Solomon's wisdom is so well known that it is attractive to people from across cultures, uh, that there are people from all corners of the ancient Near East that come to see Solomon's wisdom, to hear his insight, to hear his discernment. But, but we're also told that Solomon, in his wisdom, doesn't keep it to himself, but he produces 1,005 psalms. Some of them are contained in the book of Psalms. 
And he writes about 3,000 Proverbs, some of which are contained in the book of Proverbs, which is where we'll spend the rest of our evening hearing some of the wisdom of Solomon. So if you would do me a courtesy and turn in your Bible to the book of Proverbs, we'll spend the rest of our night there. A little bit of background in, uh, for the book of Proverbs uh, to just give you a sense of what the book looks like, what it is structured as. Um, Proverbs, most scholars would say, is broken down into seven sections. The first section, which we'll be in, Proverbs chapter 1 and chapter 2, is Solomon's introduction. He's kind of giving his thesis statement. So if you're in college right now and you're writing papers, you know that if your thesis statement is bad or unclear, the paper is probably not going to do so well. I learned that the hard way in like my last class. Proverbs 1 and 2 is Solomon's introduction and thesis statement. And then it goes on to, to the next half, which is some of the Proverbs of Solomon, some of his sayings, his counsel in what it means to live wisely. But then you get to Proverbs 22 through 24, and Solomon just says, here's some stuff that other wise people have said. It's this sort of vague reference. Hey, here's some sayings of the wise. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the sayings of the wise are actually Egyptian Proverbs that you can find in other texts. What's interesting about that is that Solomon married an Egyptian woman. We read that last week. He married the daughter of the king of Egypt. And so it's as if Solomon says, you know what? They're wrong on a lot of stuff, but, but they're right on some of this. Which is as if to say that one of the marks of wisdom is being able to recognize that even when you disagree with somebody, they're not all wrong on everything. One of the marks of wisdom is the ability to recognize the good even in people with whom you would have significant disagreements. And then we jump back into Solomon's Proverbs, and then we jump into the Proverbs of a man named Agur, and then another man named Lemuel. But we are in Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7 tonight, Solomon's great introduction. He begins in this way. He says, The proverb of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So Solomon sort of lays out his thesis statement. Hey, here's what this book is going to be about. And it kind of it goes in two directions as he explains it. Hey, here is what it looks like to become wise, but also Solomon wants to give you a sense of what the marks of wisdom are. So here is how we become wise, but also here is what it looks like to truly be a wise person. And he starts his statements on wisdom by saying to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight. So then for Solomon, the, the purpose of wisdom and instruction is understanding. This is important for you to wrap your mind around. Because wisdom, in the biblical sense, is not just you swallowing a whole bunch of facts that you can vomit out on a test. That, that doesn't even come close to what the biblical understanding of wisdom is. And you know this if you've ever crammed for a test and then vomited back out the facts. Like, math is what kept me from graduating college at a reasonable length of time. I took five or six math classes that I either dropped or failed before I finally actually passed math. 
And generally, the reason why I dropped or failed math classes was because I would wait until the night before, and then I would just sort of open my book and stare at it. And I would pray about it, and then I would stare at it. And, and on some of these tests, I was able to sort of cram into my mind the formulas that I needed to know and um, sort of the calculator tricks that would help me get through the test. But once I dumped that out on my liberal arts math one exam, which was the stuff that kept me from graduating, it was gone. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know what I dumped out on the exam. I have no idea. I just know that it was in the book, and that's what the teacher wanted to hear, so I told the teacher what they wanted to hear. That is not wisdom in the biblical sense. For Solomon, wisdom is not simply the accumulation of interesting points, but it is understanding. And and true understanding ultimately produces action in response to understanding true things. So this is important for for those of you who are kind of in this room and you're you're theology nerds. That's a good thing. I support it. I think God's a theology nerd, maybe. (laughs) Or the source of all theology, more rightly. But hear me when I say that just because you can write a paper on the finer points of Augustinian Trinitarian theology, it does not make you wise. Just because you can score an A on sort of your systematic theology exam, biblically speaking, it does not make you intelligent. What makes you wise is that you both know the things of God, but understand the things of God, and live differently in light of the things of God. That is wisdom. The purpose of wisdom is understanding and action and insight. That's what Solomon wants us to grasp. It's not enough to accumulate and stack facts and formulas and equations if it doesn't sink into us, into understanding. And he goes on to say that the the purpose of wisdom, the mark of wisdom, and the way that we receive wisdom is that we receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, in justice, in equity. Now, the English translation sort of sands off the rough edges of the Hebrew here. Uh, because the word here for instruction is not so gracious. Uh, the word in Hebrew here for instruction is discipline or correction. So then the means to wisdom, but also the mark of wisdom, is the ability to receive discipline, to receive correction, uh, to have the hard conversation where somebody tells you you're wrong and you need to change, and you actually do it rather than coming up with defenses. And ultimately, that aspect of wisdom requires humility, the humility to say, I'm wrong. I made a mistake. I didn't handle this well. Now, I should be clear on this. Uh, There is a sort of perverted humility that thinks that true humility looks like having no convictions at all or just acknowledging that all convictions are equally true. That's, That's not what Solomon's getting at here. He's not calling for people who are wise to be sort of passive and and wishy washy and, and not ever actually lay hold of something and defend it as being true. No, but what Solomon wants us to understand is that the refusal to ever admit that you might be wrong, the refusal to acknowledge that you ever might have made a mistake, the refusal to admit that maybe you didn't handle a situation well, that is not a sign of 
uh, noble confidence. That, that's not a sign of you being a, a strong-willed person in a positive way. For Solomon, the inability to receive discipline and correction and hear that you were wrong and actually fix it, that is a mark of arrogance and foolishness. That is not the prevalence of superior wisdom. It is the lack of wisdom altogether. And ultimately, the ability to admit that you're wrong kind of sits at the heart of the gospel. It kind of sits at the heart of what we do every week when we spend time repenting like Reese led us to do. The ability to acknowledge that you were wrong is the bad news that has to be spoken before the good news of what God's done in Christ can be heard. Because the gateway through which all of us pass as we become Christians is recognizing that humanity as a whole, and me in particular, have done things that are wrong and must be resolved. Now it's easy to say that about humanity as a whole. Because we can pass the buck to people like Kim Jong-il in North Korea, or Attila the Hun, or Pol Pot, or some sort of distant dictator, and say, of course humanity has made mistakes. Look at all those people. But wisdom is saying what exists in extremes in those people exists in my own heart in seed form. I have been wrong. The way the Book of Common Prayer describes it is that we sin against God both in what we have done and what we have left undone. Uh, by not loving our neighbors with our, as ourselves or loving God with our whole heart. Solomon says that the beginning of wisdom, the mark of wisdom is that we can receive correction and admit our mistakes. But he goes on to sort of unpack further what wisdom looks like. That in receiving correction and instruction and wise dealing, it ultimately should lead us to righteousness, justice, and equity. It is not enough for you and I if we would be wise to just say, yeah, I goofed on that, and then just go do it again. I... This is a phrase that I used to hear as a kid. Um, I don't know that it's totally true, but when I would apologize for doing something bad, uh, my parents would say, sorry means you'll never do it again. No, sorry means that I feel bad for doing it the first time, and I hope I don't do it again, but I can't make any promises. I'm like five. I've got a lot of time to make the same mistake again and again. But, but the underlying thinking behind that, I think, is sound. That wisdom, wisdom is not just acknowledging I've made a mistake, but it's learning to correct these mistakes and to live in righteousness and justice and equity. That is to say that wisdom is ultimately bound up in living a godly and righteous life. That is a mark of wisdom. I don't know that anybody in this room, except for the folks who are in seminary or Bible college, have ever heard of Karl Barth. Um, but Karl Barth was a Swiss theologian, uh, in the last hundred years. Most people agree he's really, really important, even if he's really, really wrong on a lot of stuff. I don't agree with Karl Barth on a whole lot of things. But I recognize that he's important, he's significant, he's brilliant. And, and many people over the years have looked up to him as a model of wisdom, as somebody who has thought carefully about the Scriptures, the things of God, what it means to follow Christ well. But in the last two weeks, in some obscure European academic journal, a couple of Karl Barth's letters have been published. And they were, they were private letters that he wrote to his wife. And in these letters, Barth explains to his wife, listen, um, 
I've fallen in love with another woman and have begun a relationship with her. And I think that it's God's will that you and I stay married, but that this relationship with her and I continue. And then he goes on further, and he says, I also think it's God's will that you and I stay married, but she come live with us as my academic assistant. People are real disappointed in Karl Barth this week. <laughs> it's, it's heinous, the things that he's written. And especially for the people who looked up to him. And maybe you've had a pastor who's failed in some moral way. And so you know the pain of somebody who you revere as being a spiritual leader, just watching them implode. But the fact remains, academically, Karl Barth is brilliant. Philosophically, I mean, he's a genius. But I think what I would say here is that biblically, Karl Barth is a fool. No matter how brilliant his church dogmatics, no matter how rigorous his philosophical analysis of the Trinity is, he's failed to grasp the most basic tenet of what it means to live a godly life. And that is to be faithful to the woman that he's made a covenant with. This is important for you and I to grasp because this is what Solomon is getting at here when he talks about wisdom leading to righteousness and justice and equity. It is not enough for you to just know what is true and good and beautiful. If you do not live a life that is true and good and beautiful, I don't care if you've read every theology book under the sun if you live a life of wickedness, it does not matter. You are a fool. Man, I don't care if you can debate the finer points of Calvinism and Arminianism and Trinitarian theology and all of the, the deep things of God that the people of God wrestle with. If, if you are a man in this room and you are sleeping with your girlfriend and leading her into sexual sin, you're not wise in the eyes of the Bible. You are a fool. I don't care how smart Karl Barth is. He's real smart. But he, in these letters, has revealed himself to be foolish in the eyes of biblical wisdom. And then Solomon goes on. He says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands, obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You might have heard this phrase, I think, therefore I am. It gets thrown around a lot. Um, you may not know where it comes from. I think, therefore I am is a famous saying from a philosopher named Rene Descartes. And Descartes. Uh, goal as a philosopher was to have a true and uh, bedrock foundation for knowledge. How can I really know anything at all? And so he starts sort of deconstructing everything. And he's like, well, I don't know that I can know this or I can know that or I can know that until he's kind of destroyed everything in his life. And he says, the only thing I can know is that I exist because I'm thinking about the fact that I exist right now. I think, therefore, I am. He says, okay. I'm going to start with that. I exist, and I'm going to build my knowledge of the world based on me. I'm going to reason up from myself towards higher things. That's the whole premise of I think, therefore, I am. It doesn't really make for like 
a cutesy quote anymore when you kind of know where it came from, <laughs> that he's just burning the world to the ground. But in, in sort of Solomon's understanding, the biblical understanding of wisdom, he's got it exactly wrong. True wisdom doesn't reason from man upward towards God, but it descends from God down towards man. That, that wisdom is not sort of this tower of Babel that humanity builds on the firm foundation of its own perception of reality. But wisdom is something that comes from God. It is the light by which we see the whole world. The fear of the Lord is not the end goal of wisdom. It's not that we acquire wisdom so that we might fear the Lord, but it is the very beginning of it. That if we do not fear God, we have not even begun to be wise. And yet, as we grow in wisdom, we do fear Him more. And we love Him more. Now this phrase, um, the fear of the Lord, is something that people struggle with from time to time. Uh, it's, it's an issue that um, people just, they wrestle with. Because, because why would we want to serve a God that we're afraid of? Why not just serve a God who we love, or who's fun, or who's funny? The comedic laughter of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom sounds better to our modern ears. I wonder, though, if our aversion to understanding the fear of God doesn't come from the fact that we don't recognize that fear and love are not opposites, but they hold hands and walk together down the road of life. Fear and love are not enemies, but two sides of the same coin. You know, in our uh, text last week, one of the things that said of Solomon that said of nobody else that I can find in Scripture is that he loved the Lord, that he loved God truly. And yet this man who loved the Lord here is telling us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Um, one of my favorite books, uh, I guess it was my brother and I's favorite book when we were younger, is this book called The Wind in the Willows. Anybody ever read it? No? That's cool. We were weird kids. <laughs> uh, the Wind in the Willows, <laughs> this is going to make us sound weirder, it follows like the adventures of like this rat and this mole and this frog as they just kind of run amok in the English countryside. Great book. Fascinating. Um, there's a chapter in The Wind in the Willows that doesn't normally get published because it's a children's book, and it's just this weird chapter that kind of strikes like lightning. And you're like, oh my gosh, no five-year-old is going to understand this. So, so the, the frog and the badger and the rat and the mole are having fun. And then this random chapter in the book, they just run into God. Which, like I said, is like just out of nowhere in a children's book. That's why it doesn't get published. But they encounter uh, the God of sort of this fictional world. And as they encounter this God, this sort of awe and reverence and silence falls upon them. Until finally one of them has the courage to speak. And he says to the other one, Are you afraid? And he responds, afraid. And then uh, the author says, he murmured this with eyes shining with unutterable love. He says, afraid of him, oh never. And yet, I am afraid. It is this awe and fear and reverence that isn't opposed to love, but is bound up in real love. I think this might be what C.S. Lewis is getting at when he writes Christ in as a lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, Narnia, not Narnia, uh, lions are these 
these things that we have stuffed animals of as kids. I don't know how you'd have a stuffed animal of Narnia. That would be insane. <laughs> we have stuffed animals of lions as kids, and yet there is something about the reality of a lion that is dangerous and wild and frightening. But, it, but it's not an opposition to love. One character says to another as they encounter Aslan, is he tame? Is he a safe lion? And the response is, of course not. He's a lion. He's not safe, but he is good. It is this fear and this love and this reverence that sits at the beginning of true wisdom. So that the fear of the Lord is not something that repels us from him, but something that draws us to him so that we might know him better. Wisdom, then, according to Solomon, is this, that we would understand the truth and live in light of it. That we would receive correction and grow and be more righteous because of it. And that we would fear God. And we would love Him in the midst of it. It's no wonder to me when Solomon defines wisdom in this way, that Christ is not seen in the Bible as just a particularly wise man, but as wisdom incarnate. Because, because he doesn't just know the Torah, he doesn't just know the Scriptures, although it's pretty obvious from the Gospels that he does, but he has this deeper understanding of them. And he needs no correction, he's sinless, and yet he still walks in humility. That's what Paul says in Philippians. He doesn't just know what is right, but he does what is right, and what is right only. And that when men approach him, there is this fear and this awe, but there is a deep-seated love that sets in as they encounter the wisdom of God, the eternal Son of God incarnate. I pray that we in this ministry would not simply be a people of intellectual facts that we know a bunch of things about God, but that we would both love him and fear him and become more wise as a result of it. And that we would see that all treasures of wisdom are hidden in Christ.